This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Who is forming our future priests and how are they being formed? These are questions that have only grown in importance in recent years, especially in the wake of recent scandals in the church. What has been going on in seminaries and what should be going on in seminaries are topics of great interest and often of great speculation. So why don't we talk to somebody who knows what's what in seminary formation? Good news, I've got just the person. Monsignor Michael Heinz is a priest of the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend. He is the former pastor of St. Matthew's Cathedral Parish in South Bend, but now he serves full-time at Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland, where some 20 dioceses send their seminarians for their studies and formation as priests. Monsignor Heinz is Associate Professor of Theology at Mount St. Mary's, as well as Spiritual Director and Academic Dean. He offered a major address on the formation of seminarians and priests at the McGrath Institute for Church Life's Called and Co-Responsible Conference, and today he joins me, Leonard DiLorenzo, to answer our questions and give us a better grasp of who's being formed in seminaries, how they're being formed, and to what end. Monsignor Heinz, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lenny. So a lot of attention has been paid to seminaries in recent years, and well, maybe it's more accurate to say that a lot of suspicion has been cast upon seminaries in recent years. And a lot of that suspicion, I think, is coming from a distance, and people are concerned about how seminarians are being formed and the priests that are coming out. So you're in a seminary now. You're spending almost all of your time teaching Mm -hmm. and forming seminarians. Can you tell us a little bit about how your seminary is seeking to form these mostly young men. Sure, sure. It's it's. Uh, I think there are there are suspicions about just life in the church in general, and you know people who've seen bishops and priests and cardinals who've lived disordered and aberrant lives, who've done mm-hmm. horrible things, and others who've covered things up, and so they're asking, how could we allow this to happen? Where where you know where's this coming from? So where does it start? And seminaries, and I've been in, working in seminary uh, Mount Saint Mary's the last four years. We're extremely attentive to those concerns, mm-hmm. and seminaries are always a work in progress. We're learning as much as we're teaching, uh, as we're going along, realizing what we need to be helping men, helping to form men to be and to do. So, seminary formation is, in the simplest terms, allowing men to grow in freedom, so that they can make an honest and true gift of themselves in ordination. Seminary is a place where men come to discern priesthood, but discernment is a two-way street. Uh, that is to say, the man discerns in company with a spiritual director and a formation advisor and his peers and the fraternity in the house, discerning whether God is calling him to serve as a priest. That's 50% of the discernment. The other 50% is the church looking at this man and discerning, does this man have the gifts requisite, the capacities, the desire, and the kind of life and skills necessary to live that life faithfully and in a joyful way? Uh, and so the, it's a two-way conversation. And there are men who've said to me, like, I've reached the point of decision. That is to say, they believe they're called to priesthood. And that's almost always confirmed by the decision also of the formation staff. Mm-hmm. Yes, we see in you the growth that's required. And again, it's about growing in freedom. Not that any of us is totally enslaved, but none right. of us is really totally free either. All of us live with, we, we operate sometimes more out of fear than out of love. We have... Wounds from the past that need to be healed, some of them human, some of them spiritual. 
And seminary is a place where the formation takes place of a man whom the di- a diocese or religious community has deemed able and ready to undertake that formation. There's really, uh, the d- documents of the church speak about two stages, one called the discipleship stage. Mm-hmm. And that is really college seminaries. There are a handful in the country that do really good work forming collegiate age men uh, for, for seminary. And also those what we call the pre-theology program. That is, young men who say went to Notre Dame or Purdue or IU have a degree in music or English or biochemistry and have discerned to call it a priesthood. Well, pre-theology is two years of formation, intellectually largely in the philosophical disciplines that will help them in theology, but even more fundamentally just about growth in discipleship, teaching them a deeper habit of prayer, the church's liturgy, particularly the liturgy of the hours, the custom of the holy hour, the rosary, and just being formed humanly, spiritually, intellectually, and, and pastorally to serve the church. After the discipleship phase, whether college, seminary, or pre-theology, seminarians enter what's called the configuration stage, which is more explicitly formation to Christ the high priest. That's four years of theological study, uh, again, parts of that include formation seminars, pastoral work, evaluations that are ongoing, uh, a long-term relationship with a spiritual director and formation advisor who, who, who challenge appropriately the man to grow in the areas that both he identifies as, as needed, but also they might identify in him as needed. Uh, and what I have seen in my four years is that in seminaries we have a saying, formation works, and it does. I've seen men who, when they arrived, were unsure of themselves, unsure of God's love for them, unsure of the church, unsure of what this vocation might mean, the things that they were letting go of. A lot of men come to seminary letting go of really good and beautiful things. Hmm. You know, it's not that they're, they came to the seminary because they couldn't find anything else to do. Many of them left a very meaningful job, uh, a relationship with a wonderful woman that they loved and cared for, but felt something stronger in God calling them. So I have great respect for the men who come to seminary because so often they're leaving something good and beautiful. But it's the way of the Lord. He calls us not only to leave behind evil, that's kind of a no-brainer. He also calls us to abandon the nets, good things, Hmm. in order to follow him. And so it's really good for a man to kind of feel that pain of, wow, I could have been married, I could be a father. Not because those are bad things, but he needs to realize that what he's actually forsaking for the Lord is a good thing and a holy thing and a noble thing, rather than something that's to be eschewed or dismissed as second class letting go of those of the possibility of marriage and family, embracing celibacy not as a simply a renunciation, but as a gift that allows him an ever deeper freedom and configuration of Christ are what the seminary is meant to do. Yeah. As you were speaking before, and the, the formation is ordered towards their freedom to, to yeah. creating them or forming them to be free. Mm-hmm. You said that's so that the man can make an honest gift of himself in mm-hmm. his priesthood. And I want to kind of pause with that and think about the honest gift of himself, because it's not saying in order to do this role, to perform these functions, that at the center of the priesthood is the person. It's yes. their humanity, right? Yes. They happen then to be given these faculties, mm-hmm. the, the, this role, this ministry in the church, but the sacrament is conferred on the person. Mm-hmm. So as you were talking about the study and other areas of their growth, how is the seminary a time of formation of the whole person? Absolutely. That's a great question. I think there's two elements of priesthood. There's obviously the function, things priests do, but those functions flow from an identity. Hmm. Uh, Everyone who's baptized is configured to Christ, priest, prophet, and king. And there's a character change, theologians tell us, that happens to those who are baptized. There's a, a kind of configuration to Christ that's real, 
and abiding. It can't be lost. It can be ignored, it can be rejected, but it can never be taken away. In ordination, there's a further configuration to Christ that's given, another character that's given at ordination to uh, a man approaching priesthood. In order to do that, he needs to be as well-rounded and healthy as possible. That doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't mean without sin or struggle. Uh, seminarians in formation for priesthood have to grow. In The documents talk about self-awareness, mm-hmm. who I am before God, and more importantly, even in baptism, who I am in Christ, then self-acceptance. This is who I am, and here are my weaknesses. I have a, a predisposition for resentment or anger or lust or any number of the vices that accompany all human beings. The recognition of that, the surrender of that to God's grace, the recognition that my besetting sins might be with me for a while, but I, but I entrust myself to God and his grace, and that I, in conversation with my spiritual director, have determined that these things are not themselves obstacles or impediments to pursuing ordination in the church. And then finally, self-donation or self-gift. So the dynamic of self-awareness, self-acceptance, self-gift is the pattern that we see or would like to see in a man moving toward ordination. And again, as you pointed out so wisely, Lenny, it's the man, the person that's being configured to Christ. So it begins with an identity. The priest, the diocesan priest especially, is a man who's espoused to the church. His bride is the church because he's configured to Christ who is the bridegroom. And so he has to think of the church and love the church and want to give his life to the church as his spouse. And as you're a married man, you know this. You probably die to yourself all the time Hmm. in loving your wife and giving yourself for your children and she for you. That this is how spousal love works. The seminary and the priest has no less a spousal love. It's just ordered differently and expressed differently. But if a man thinks that, well, what it means to be a priest is that I get to be in charge of a parish and, you know, and just, just, just sort of give Jesus to people. Well, in one sense, there's truth to that. But that's a rather, I think, diminished notion of what priesthood really is. It's I as a disciple and you as a disciple together growing in holiness. And I received a sacrament, priesthood, which enables me to serve all of you who are baptized, that we were, we're disciples together. My priesthood serves the discipleship of everyone in my parish, everyone in my hospital, wherever I serve. That's what my priesthood is configured to do, to be of service to the royal priesthood of the baptized. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. I'm talking with Monsignor Michael Heinz, Associate Professor of Theology and Academic Dean at Mount St. Mary's Seminary and former pastor at St. Matthew's Cathedral Parish here in South Bend. Who also, I should say for the record, has a voice tailor-made for radio, <laughs> and a face tailor-made for radio. Okay, all right. Um, as you were talking about, you know, some of those vices or predispositions that, mm-hmm. you know, are part of our human fabric, like, mm-hmm. you're saying, it sounds to me like, the point of the formation isn't to completely root those out. There's no way really well, to do that. I'm Augustinian enough to know that we'll never be able completely to root them out. Right. What we do want a man who's significantly free, mm-hmm. that is to say that none of these things or behaviors are impairing his freedom in choosing Christ and the church as his bride. And so it's not a matter of moral perfectionism. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is to say that he has to attain a level of of profound holiness in himself, and he has to sustain that in every moment of his being. There are two sinless people, Jesus Christ and his mother. And those are the only two that are going to attain that, to have that a status. We're not going to. That said, a priest should be a man who's striving for holiness Mm -hmm. in communion with his brothers and sisters in Christ and is free enough to pursue that without the hindrances of a besetting sins that hold him back or hold him down. Um, at the ordination rite, uh, it's an ancient rite, the bishop asks, 
after the candidate is presented for orders, have you found him worthy? Well, any of us who's honest would say, heck no. Uh, <laughs> no man is worthy to be a priest. None of us is. Yeah. Christ calls us anyway. Yeah. And it's not a matter of a kind of attaining a, a moral perfectionism where we're so holy now that we're worthy of it. No matter what we do, we won't be worthy of it. But we also have to be men who are free enough and and living in communion and relationship with Christ enough through prayer, a personal living relationship with the risen Lord that, that actually shines through and manifests itself in his life. That is, in other words, he has to be a really, really good disciple. Yeah. And the priest never loses that discipleship. You know, we serve all the scandals and problems in the church. Bishops and, and priests and cardinals who do horrible things do so not because they're bad cardinals, bishops, or priests, but more fundamentally, they're bad disciples. Mm. Their vocation to holiness is what's been impaired. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, is being enacted in their priesthood. But it's, it's the vocational holiness that they share with every baptized person that's been ignored or denied or thrown aside that is the real problem. So this is, it sounds, you know, very much like an issue of spiritual growth. And then I wonder, so that spiritual growth is not set aside from these very practical things. Like if you know and it's been deemed in your formation, you have a disposition towards this, right? Mm. There are very practical ways in which that spiritual growth happens, right? Being able to confront and deal with this and seek help. And to renounce it Mm -hmm. and to give it to the Lord. And also the whole ascetical tradition of the church, the practices of of fasting and prayer and self-denial, you know, small things like deciding, uh, I was talking to a man who's giving up, he drinks a lot of uh, Coke, Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola, yeah, Yeah, okay, good. lots of Coca-Cola. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, he's giving that up for Lent. And it sounds like a little thing to some people, right. but if you're used to drinking that several cans a day, that's actually a sacrifice. It's not in itself virtuous, but what that's enabling him to do in other areas is maybe bite his lip when he's going to say something snarky. Yeah. Or that those practices, the church has a rich tradition of ascetical practice that's meant for every Christian, not just mm-hmm. for seminarians or priests, that if we discover it, it helps us to grow in freedom. Again, the whole point is to be free, not to be bound by past choices, not to be bound by patterns of behavior that we think lock us in, but to become men and women who are freely treated, that true, free. That's our true vocation in Christ. You know, for freedom, Christ has set us free, as Paul says. And the seminarian, no less than any other Christian, has to grow in that freedom. So the men that are at your seminary, they're coming from dioceses across the country, yes. 20 or so. 20 or so dioceses. 20 or so yeah. dioceses. And at we, some point, you know, if they're, they're formed well and they've discerned the priesthood and the, the formators mm-hmm. agree and uh, ordinations conferred upon them, there'll be a transition from the seminary yes. to parish life almost certainly, mm-hmm. uh, likely as an associate pra- pastor first. Yeah. And then after three weeks in some places, pastor. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and then, it, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Um, can we talk a little bit about that transition yeah, from that, seminary to parish? Sure, that, this, that's a significant transition. Yeah. We, I, I teach a seminar in the spring. A colleague of mine, Monsignor Anthony Frontero, and I, uh, he's the vice rector. He and I teach uh, a seminar for the deacons both semesters. In the spring semester, the real focus is on that transition to parish life, which, you know, it, that's the goal every seminarian comes to the seminary with. You know, I've told many seminarians that if you feel the seminary is a little awkward and artificial, that's only because it is. Uh, no one has a vocation to be in the seminary permanently. They have a vocation to be in the seminary so as to get to a parish. And and a man who's super comfortable in the seminary and its communal life might have a vocation to be religious rather than a diocesan priest. Mm. But So for a man to be in a seminary and feel himself a little awkward or uncomfortable, that's okay because you're not meant to be there for more than six or eight years max. And so, But the transition to parish life, as exciting as it may be, it's a real transition. Because especially for men today, in, in this culture and generation of seminarians, deep senses of fraternity with one another. Well, in most dioceses that we serve, and in most that I know, after a couple of years, you're going to be alone in a parish. 
and to have to be intentional about those relationships and fraternity, to be intentional about your prayer life because no one's going to make you go to chapel in the morning. And the goal is for seminarians to live in such a way that the transition to parish life is as seamless as possible so that those habits, I told the fourth year men, the deacons every year, look at your calendar and start building in now the things you need to do every day as a parish priest. Put them in your calendar now, like my prayer time, my mass time, my holy hour, my reading, my exercise time, my recreation. Build those in now and keep them in your calendar. Right now, it may seem pointless to put them in there because you can have control over them. But as soon as you're in a parish, you need to be more rigid about controlling your schedule so that those things happen. Now, never, of course, taking precedence over real pastoral need. But if you, the young guys are going to come into parishes, people are going to love on them, which is great. And they're going to want to say yes to everything the parish mm-hmm. asks them to do. And they're going to look at their calendar at the end of the day and realize, wow, I worked 14 straight hours today. I didn't pray at all. And it's, their desire is noble, but that's undisciplined. And so to have the patterns of discipline, to be able to say to someone like, well, I can't, I can't do that now, but can I do it next Tuesday? Or I can't say yes now, but can we say, can I, can we schedule for you? Because I've already committed to something else. One of the great mistakes lots of young priests make is double booking, triple booking, saying yes to lots right. of things, not writing it down. Right. They're terrible about writing things down. I'm always on their case about you know, uh-huh. calendaring uh-huh. and time management and writing things down um, because they, they mean well and they'll, you know, they'll walk in and they'll be like, don't we have a meeting right now? I say, no, we don't. Well, I had it in my book, and I said, well, which of us is more likely to have made that mistake? <laughs> you know, uh, because I'm, you know, I'm just used to being very good about my schedule, and they're not because they don't have to be. Mm-hmm. But they're going to have to be as priests. Mm-hmm. And, if, and you can be as busy or as, or, as, or as negligent as you want if you control your calendar and manage your time well. Time management is a real art and gift. Some of the most extraordinary priests I know and whom I look to as models are masters of managing their time well, which doesn't mean working ex- you know, 28 hours a day and never resting. It means they balance their schedule so that they can do really good work in ministry and also take time for prayer, mm-hmm. for some exercise, for rest, recreation, for reading. You know, The only guys who are going to preach well continually are the guys who go- continue to read. And I'm not just talking about reading deep theology. I'm talking about like poetry, history, novels, literature, so that they have grist to focus on in their prayer and meditation to give them something to preach about. I mean, Bishop Barron's a master of this. He's always drawing in on the arts and on movies he's seen as a way of, of thinking about whatever the gospel proposes for our, our reflection. And so these men have to have, keep the life of the mind alive and their prayer life alive so that they'll be good preachers. That really is essential for good preaching. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. I'm talking with Monsignor Michael Heinz, Associate Professor of Theology and Academic Dean at Mount St. Mary's Seminary, former pastor of St. Matthew's Cathedral Parish here in South Bend. For a uh, newly ordained priest who's coming to a parish, what can the parish community do to help that new priest to transition into his new parish life? Uh, The first thing is to welcome him, love him, and give him a chance to catch his breath. Uh, the first temptation anyone in a parish is going to be is, hey, look, Father Lenny's coming to our parish. Let's invite him to talk at this talk. Let's invite him to do this. Let's invite him to do that. That's wonderful because it shows that the, the need's there, the love is there, the desire's there. Let the guy catch his breath. I've, I've told a number of them who are being ordained this year as priests, if possible, let's say your assignment starts July 1st or June 25th, ask the pastor you're moving into that parish, ask him if you can have a couple, get there a couple days early to unpack and get settled. Yeah. Because otherwise, if you land there the day you start, it'll be a month into your priesthood and you still haven't unpacked because you haven't had a chance to do so. Right. But to, to enter in fully ready and to embrace God's people and let them embrace him. So people of parishes, just love on them, uh, invite them to things, yes, but give them a chance to catch their breath as well. What kind of responsibility would you say then is 
is there for us as parishioners to help to continue to form our priests? That's a great question. I, I tell the men all the time that essential to my life as a priest, and it will be essential to theirs, it already is in some ways as seminarians, is great friendships with married couples and families. Hmm. The, one of the best things you can do is to say, Father, we'd love to have you over for dinner at our house. And you don't have to put on airs, and you don't have to have an agenda. Just let him come over and meet your family, hang out at your house for dinner, and just feed him. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you got to hang up the crucifixes now yeah, and yeah, you know, yeah, get yeah. the Bible out yeah, exactly. so it looks like they've the been there the whole time. Put their shoes away from That's the front right. door yeah, and yeah, all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. But yeah, but no, but, but really to, to, to say, hey, Father, we'd love to have you to the house for dinner. And because priests need to develop really healthy relationships with married couples and families, it keeps us sane. Because what we learn, Lenny, from I have many married friends and, and couples, what I learn about the love of a parent helps me as a, a spiritual father. What I learned as watching husbands and wives whom I love die to themselves for each other teaches me how I'm supposed to live for my people. And so the witness of married persons is integral and essential to the health and spiritual life of every priest. So the priest who doesn't have any married friends or, or has only priest friends, that guy's going to get to be odd and weird. <laughs> not, not because he's evil, yeah, but, right. but the eccentricities we all have aren't going to be worn off by normalcy. Uh-huh. You know, uh, my rector gave a great conference a couple of years ago. He said, hey guys, here's, the, here's what I want you to all work on being normal. Like, <laughs> don't be odd. Don't have, you know, like... There's, there's a tendency in, in, in some individuals, it's not limited to seminaries, <clears throat> men who flee from normalcy. It's like, no, just be, just be normal, be healthy and be normal. And, and so spending time at someone's house for a couple hours on a, a Sunday evening or Tuesday evening, having dinner, listening to kids talk, getting to know their names, that's life-giving for a priest. It's probably also life-giving for families. Yeah. But it's, it's a symbiotic relationship, so it's absolutely essential for both. Yeah. What do you think is at the heart of the, the vocation specifically to the diocesan priesthood? Um, I think it's probably at the heart of every Christian vocation, actually, is the desire to give yourself to something. Hmm. Um, and I think everyone has that deep desire, and they don't often articulate it. It's not brought to the surface in their reflection. And people will give themselves to all kinds of things, causes and you know, all kinds of campaigns and causes and issues and, and, and such. Those are all symptoms of a deeper desire we all have. We're made for God, and we're made to give ourselves to God. You know, Fulton Sheen said that, that priests and married people do it in different ways. Priests do it by the direct current, married couples by the alternate current. That is, you're loving God through your spouse. The priest loves God directly. Not that he has a special direct line uh -huh. to God as much as that there is, it's not, it's not given through another person. But we're all meant to give ourselves to God. Hmm. And so to identify that as the deepest need, and that need exists in every Christian life, not just priesthood, not just religious life. And so I think what's drawing men is a deep desire to give themselves. And I think the example and, and modeling of good holy priests draws men to priesthood. When they see a pastor who's giving his life for the people and who's happy and joyful, joy is so important. If I'm grumpy, curmudgeony, distant, and remote, well, I'm probably not going to inspire any young man to want to be like me. But if I actually love what I do and I'm joyful, that's going to draw people. I also have my own theory, and I'd love sociologists to test this out. Um, and maybe the McGrath Institute could sponsor a, uh, a study <laughs> like this. If you look at the vocations in our diocese, and we have like, close to 26, 28 vocations, seminarians are wonderful young men. The vast majority of them come from parishes where the pastor had been in place at least 15 or more years. In hmm. some cases, 25, 26 years. And what I mean by that, it's not the priest himself, although it's important that you have good... And no, no priest who's, good, who's a problem is going to be in a parish for right. 20 years. 
But the longevity of pastor provides a kind of spiritual fatherhood and stability in these men's lives. And, I, and if you look at the men in seminary, they won't necessarily point to a particular that particular priest in himself as the cause, but his stable presence in their life. He was their pastor when they were in grade school. He was their pastor when they were in high school. They went off to college. He was still their pastor. They decided to talk to somebody about priesthood, and guess who they found themselves talking to? That guy. Because he had been a stable, fatherly presence in their life. I'm convinced... And, and, and if you look at dioceses, again, I don't know the data, but I'm, it's an impression. Dioceses where there are pastoral terms, where a priest is there five or seven years and has to move, <clears throat> you're not going to find as many vocations. Mm-hmm. And I think that that, that that actually, bishops need to look at the value of leaving a priest. If, if, if he's happy there, the people are happy there, there are no concerns. To leave a priest in a place, it cultivates a culture of vocation. Even if the priest isn't even aware he's doing it, just his stable fatherly presence in a community over time builds that culture, and, and, and men are capable of coming up to him and saying, hey, Father, can I talk to you about something? That is worth studying. So I'll talk to my boss about okay. you know, funding, funding that study. That would be very interesting. Um, thinking about the young man, the young men that you're receiving, especially the young, they're not all young men, but, but most of them are Younger. who are coming to seminary. Um, today, let's say compared to when you were in seminary, what kind of issues... Um, Maybe there are opportunities too. Issues, concerns are present with the men today. Things that are part of formation that might not have been there, say, yeah. when you were in seminary. I think there's there's pros and cons. Are good things and bad and yeah, challenging things. Sure. I think the, the the challenging thing is these men are all coming from the digital generation. Their lives have been dominated by screens since they were small. Yeah. And because of that, you know, it it'll, it affects their you know attention span. Just educationally, it's harder. I teach Greek among other things, and just for young men to memorize a paradigm or vocabulary is harder, not because they're not intelligent, but because their brains no longer have to work that way because you can look anything up instantaneously on your phone or right. iPad. And so as a result, and they'll admit this, they, their memories aren't really good. Um, so there's challenges, and also the digital culture, some of the stuff that the kids encountered at early age, you know, pornography, um, the violent games, which I think are just as bad, mm-hmm. uh, that, that have shaped their consciousness and their lives. Getting them to become free of those things or freer of those things, not to be looking at their phone all the time. Social media, you know, my advice to every directee and advisee is whoever says my life is richer and more meaningful because of social media, no one says that. If anything, it's a source of stress and anxiety, sometimes anger. And so, and I, and I'm not that I'm virtuous, I'm just older, so I don't have any of that stuff. It's not a function of virtue, it's just I'm old and I don't understand technology. So, I, all my computer stuff and phone stuff, I have one of the seminarians do for me because I don't understand it. But, but I'm not into those things. Here's what they do bring to the table it's something I never experienced as much. When I was a seminarian, we were all kind of guarded in relation to one another. These men are capable of and express and live out a much deeper fraternity with one mm. another than my generation. Of There's something very good there to work with, really right? Good. Yeah. It's really It's yeah. beautiful. They are, like I can say, every one of them that I know and work with, they're earnest, they love the Lord, they're devout, and they do have this capacity for fraternity that my generation was more resistant toward. And that's a great thing. That The shadow side of that is that when they get into parishes, again, after a couple of years, they're going to be alone. And so... I think it's a function of helping men to learn to live alone and to be healthy in living alone. Mm-hmm. Um, because, again, it's easy to look for compensations or distractions when, you're, when your affective needs are challenged. So to help men to live in a healthy way. I had a seminarian several summers ago at, at St. Matthew, a great kid. And uh, the associate pastor, Father Jake Runyon, and I were invited to someone's house for dinner. 
And my method when I have a seminarian is to drag him everywhere I go. He does everything I do, go to the hospital, go to mass, go wherever he goes. We were going out the back door, and Father Jake said to me, are you inviting so-and-so? And I said, no, I didn't ask him. He said, are you mad at him? And I said, no, no, not at all. I said, I, I think he's great. I want to have him have an experience of being alone in a rectory for an evening. Oh. He hadn't had one. We had been carting him everywhere, entertaining him. And yeah. I said, we're not helping him. If he thinks that every evening in a rectory is constant fun and games, it's actually going to be a number of evenings when you're home alone. And what do you do with that? And so I, I said, let's, let's let him have an evening here alone. It's probably good for him. So men have to learn those habits as well. The fraternity isn't going to be instant. They can't wander down the hall and hang out, six guys hanging out in one room, which is beautiful in a right, seminary. Right, right. It's not possible in a rectory. And so to be intentional about that fraternity and cultivate it in an occasional and intentional way. Very good. Well, we're coming to the end of our time, so maybe we can just close briefly, if you don't mind, by me asking you, you know, the state, well, I don't want to ask about the state of the priesthood right now, but let's say, you know, the hope for uh, healing, renewal, and really, I, I suppose, the mission of the church in in and through um, our new priests, mm-hmm. the ones that are coming, and perhaps sharing even a, a greater uh, degree of sharing this mission with uh, the lay people they serve and that they build up? Mm-hmm. I think the secret is so simple. Love your people. Hmm. And these are men who come with a great deal of capacity for love. And to go into your parish, wherever you're assigned, and just go love people and care for them and, and make them your life. Your, the priesthood is not a job I do nine to five and then I have my real life after that. Yeah. It is my life. And it's got to be their life too. And to, so that they see that obviously they have some downtime to go play golf or racquetball or take a vacation, of course. But that they're not doing the priesthood to get to those moments that rather their life and vitality and joy comes from living with and praying with and, and serving, giving the sacraments to the people that they love. And so I think that that's, it's, it's not hard. As I joked last night, you know, the, the secret to success is simple for priests. Smile, work hard, be kind, and show up. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really, people will be, forgive us our failings and weaknesses in administration or in preaching or other areas if they know we care about them. If, you know, wow, you visited my mom in the hospital, or, oh, you remember my son's name, or you came to the wake when my uncle died, or you sent me a note when this happened. When people see that their priests genuinely love them and are invested in their life, like politics, ecclesiology is local. And for people who live in a parish where they love their pastor and they know their pastor loves them, the scandals in the church are real but remote. Hmm. For people who live in a parish where their pastor is remote and disengaged, those scandals feel a lot closer to home. Yeah. We've been talking with Monsignor Michael Hines. He joined us here at Notre Dame for the Called and Co-Responsible Conference, where he gave just a wonderful presentation. You can check out his presentation from the Called and Co-Responsible Conference through the McGrath Institute for Church Life's YouTube page, or by visiting our website at mcgrath.nd.edu. Look under the Conferences tab. Monsignor, thank you for joining us. Lenny, it's a joy, and I love the McGrath Institute and everything you folks do. And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life Today. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Does debt have you down? Are you worried about your credit cards, your mortgage, or keeping your car? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union can help. Our people are trained to be financial physicians. They can give you a checkup, help you to heal, and then stay healthy. 
Don't be embarrassed, it's why we exist. When your body is sick, you go to see a doctor. When your finances are sick, you go to see the friendly folks at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits?